Okay, well, I know what you're wondering. Who was that handsome man with the brilliant smile? His name is Charlie Stiles. He's with us today to teach in our worship today. And so to all joining us right here from Coral Gables or to those of you joining us online from wherever your part of the world is, we are welcoming God's gracious spirit to join your hearts with ours as we open our minds and open our, our ears today to invite his truth to set us free. Now, Charlie is here with us um, as part of an Oxford apologetics team. We have heard from um, Tom and from Sarah and from Ben, but today we get to hear from you, Charlie, and I'm very yeah, excited sorry. for our congregation in that. Um, and uh, very excited, I think, is did you say that your wife Sophie and family were gonna be watching us? Yes, they are. So my beautiful wife Sophie, and our, um, our three children, Zebedee, Elspeth, and Tabitha. And they went to church this morning. It's about lunchtime for them, and so they're watching online. So uh, could everyone just give us a bit yeah. of a hello? Let's could give everyone... a shout out to Sophie and the, and the family. We love Charlie! Um, what we, there are so many amazing things I could say about Charlie. The one that matters to us most is that he is the tip of the spear team leader for this amazing effort, this movement that is happening through the Oxford Apologetics team. And today we have the privilege of hearing from you. We have had our minds expanded. We've had our hearts enlarged. We've been inspired. We've been encouraged. We've been challenged. And today a final charge that really underlines the meaning behind it all. So I had somebody tell us after our early experience here, oh, this was the perfect conclusion to everything that we had experienced yesterday. So we, we eagerly hear from you. But one other thing I want to tell you, tell everybody here that Charlie was sharing with me this morning. In his role as pastor, and you were pastor for several years, but one church you pastored for nine years in the UK, and it was the same church that John Wycliffe whom we know as the famous Bible translator who translated the first Bible into English. If you've ever read an English Bible, we can say thank you to John Wycliffe. But you pastored the same church that John Wycliffe finished his translation at. Yeah, absolutely. So um, he was an Oxford, um, you're going back um, 750 years, and he was an Oxford kind of professor and did all these thinking study, and he just loved the scriptures and he opened them out. And he realized there was lots of things in the Bible that people hadn't realized because most people didn't have the Bible. Um, and he started preaching in Oxford, and things basically got a bit hot for him. So they kicked him out and sent him to Lutterworth, this little um, town um, in the middle of England. And, um, and that, it was there where he was effectively on sort of sabbatical or house arrest. But he finished the translation of the Bible. And he sent me, gave people a page, and he went out, and they went out, and they took the faith to people. Now, that's amazing to me, what, what you just said. For those of you who are trying to keep up, what's he saying, what's he saying, what's he saying? Okay. Used, the last thing you said was that he would translate a page of the Bible yeah. from the Latin Bible into English. Into normal English, the English that normal people spoke, not some highfalutin academic. That were part of his congregation. Yeah. And, and he'd then, give them a page and people would just go out. And it was the first of lay preachers, just people saying, we want to go and we want to get the truth to people. And they were equipped with the, with the, the purpose scripture. of our church, Charlie, we say we exist to help people find and follow Christ. We want to help make the word of God as so easy to understand, accessible. Mm -hmm. And so uh, thank you for that. And we thank God that he's gonna use you to do that for us today. Great. Let's make Charlie welcome thank one you. more time. 
It's great to be here. Um, we've been loving, uh, loving Miami. Um, it's been absolutely wonderful. Um, and uh, yeah, if you want to meet the team, they're down here and they'll be here afterwards. Don't go away, guys. So if you, if you, had, if you were here yesterday and you're trying with your questions or you want to um, talk a bit more with us, we'd love, to, we'd love to spend some time with you. So please do come and say hello. Um, it is... Oh, you're over there, Tom. Okay. Have you fallen out with the rest of the team that I didn't know about? Okay, fine, no worries. It's great being here. It's, um, well, it's 4,000 miles from home. Although I will admit, even though I'm really missing my family, when we did a video call um, on a balmy Florida afternoon, and I kind of saw them in the house, ice on the windows, wrapped in blankets, I was a little bit less homesick all of a sudden. <laughs> um, but it would be delightful to see them in a couple of days' time. It's been wonderful as well to come and uh, fly all that way and then come and meet brothers and sisters. Not just people part of sort of the same global corporation, but part of the same global family. To meet, to have in common with you guys something astonishing, despite the fact we'd never met before. Here are brothers and sisters that we meet, and it's, that's been a real privilege. But there are two particular things I, I've been so encouraged by, and one of them is that you just have the same kind of hunger that we have to connect with the world, to listen to what's going on out there, to listen to our friends and our neighbours, to listen even to our own doubts and questions. I take them really seriously and come with the truths of God into that world and do that with grace and love and kindness and compassion, but with clarity to help bring hope to a lost world. And that's been absolutely wonderful. And the other is to, to meet in this place um, just such a huge variety of different people. I didn't know till this morning, 32 different nations, uh, at least 32 different nations represented here. This is a place that is celebrating and enjoying the diversity of, of God's church and the world that he's made. And it's just wonderful to, to be with you in your city and see that. So thank you and make you so welcome. Um, thank you uh, particularly to those who've um, stuffed us full of food. Um, honestly, American hospitality seems to be just, just feed, feed your guests until they can eat no more. Um, it's great to be invited to preach to you today. And I want to bring a word um, as I look around the world and realize that we are in an anxious world. We're in a world that is, that is, that is, that is insecure and fearful that we are anxious about what's going to happen in the future. We're anxious even about what's going on now. You know, we've just come out of a, a global pandemic where you know, we were going around sort of keeping our distance from people, really worried about what the, what the consequences were going to be of that interaction, where we feared people coming from other places because they might bring, uh, bring the disease or a new variant or something. And even though we we're out of it, we're still aware of that, and people are still paying such attention to the headlines. What's going on? And of course, not just on a global scale, but many of us will have known that in our own lives, that kind of worry about health. What's going to happen to me? What's the doctor going to tell me this week? There are reasons for anxiety. So too in the world of the economy. Again, both on a global scale, when the, the leaders of the global economies meet in Davos for the World Economic Forum, and they share that the growth is slowing down, and there's this increasing narrative that there's not going to be enough. And as there's scarcity, everyone starts being more protectionist. They hold on to what they do. They, can't, they don't plan ahead. They don't invest. And so everyone, the whole conversation is shaped by anxiety about the future. And many of us will know that in our own lives 
uh, as the cost of living goes up. We've got a particular crunch at the moment in the UK around our heating bills. But I know that many people will be facing that on a personal level. How do, how do, I, know where the next, do I know where the next paycheck is going to come from? Or is it going to be enough to meet the outgoings? We live in an anxious world and there are reasons for anxiety. You see, too, in our, our politics, as our disagreements get louder, where there's a, a tension almost in any of these kind of relationships, where there are some topics that are, that, are, that, are, that are kind of out of bounds, even in church family, in our own families, and the people close to us, we sort of know that's a no-go topic. And the whole that, I think there is a real anxiety about what the future holds, about what's important, about where we can find hope. And we know, too, that there is a real crisis in mental health. I think it's a pandemic, actually, that could well be more wider-reaching and longer-lasting than COVID-19, as people are anxious and worried. And maybe you've had that experience yourself in your own life, where you just find yourself waking up in the middle of the night with 101 things that you're worried about. And some of those are good, you know, re- re- sort of solid things, that kind of things you've got to, 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 to deal with, and other things are just big and beyond you. And we are facing kind of real struggle with mental health. And underneath all of those and the many other questions and reasons for anxiety, I think there's a more fundamental question. And it is about us, about each one of us, about who we are and what we're worth. And that's why I think we, we seek to answer that question in different ways. Because there are different ways of answering the question, who am I, what am I worth? One thing is to say, I'm going to prove myself by production in what I do, whether it be kind of the family that, that, that I care for, that they would grow up well, and how many parents try and sort of prove their own worth through their children's ex- um, achievements. Uh, whether it's through um, what we do at work, you know, either reaching a certain level so we get the respect or, or earning enough money so that um, we can be secure. We seek we seek through kind of production, through what we do, we seek to find value. So that some, just longing that at some point someone's going to say, you are worth it. That's enough. I think too we're seeing it in a lot of identity politics. Of how we define ourselves by self-exploration, self-discovery. People are looking within and saying, who really am I? And we have names and sort of badges and labels that we're coming up with to try and define who I am underneath. Perhaps particularly if I can get in a group with other people who share that same identity signifier, then maybe we can find some sort of solidity, some security, some value um, together in who we discover ourselves to be. Or perhaps it's connected with that, but it's establishing ourselves in the affirmation of others. So people look at us and they say, you're good. They, they click to follow you. They click to like your picture. And so we're seeing more and more people kind of investing so much time in trying to be famous, in trying to make their name, build their brand. Because we want to establish ourselves. We think if enough people like me, if enough people honor me, if enough people kind of click, then I'm worth it. And of course, it's fundamentally insecure. And it, it's striving and But that's the thing with all of those three and many of the other answers that we look for as we want to try and find security and value and and establish our worth is that we think it's a fight. We've got to do it. That it all rests on me and what I do and what I achieve. So if I can just do enough, 
I'll get the thumbs up. I'll get the hearts. I'll get the likes. Somebody um, either online or in person will say, you are there. You are enough. You are worth it. We live in an anxious world. But I think there's a different way. I was a church pastor um, uh, in Lutterworth for nine years. And there's a particular day that sticks in my mind. It was a baptism service. Now, for any pastor, a baptism service is a real highlight. Like, it's not that all the other, all the other worship experiences aren't wonderful, but that kind of day, those are the things you, kind of, you pray for and you long for. Because it's a, it's a moment to be treasures, uh, treasured as, as it marks some, that sacred moment that marks some transition from death to life transformation and rescue and there's a certain baptism service I come back to time and time again there's two uh, young adults in our congregation I'm going to call them uh, Nathan and Lisa and both of them had learning difficulties you know people who struggle people who aren't normal they're so often overlooked so easily undervalued in our world particularly they have quite significant needs they can be seen in economically as a burden Here's another statistic of somebody that we've got to kind of support. Or in the social world, they're often inconvenient. I'm in my church, I had somebody with Tourette's, and they would just shout out randomly. It is incredibly distracting in prayer time. You know, in the world, it is so easy for these people. And so um, when it came to their baptism service, we were there thinking, right, how do we help them to tell their story? They weren't particularly eloquent. They were very nervous. We would normally have people come up the front and we'd do a little interview so that they could tell their story. And they didn't really want to do that. So I went around and it was just a pleasure to spend an afternoon with them filming uh, a recorded interview so that they could tell their story. Their story that is so rarely heard. And that day in the church, they were the center of attention, not overlooked, not undervalued, they were in the middle. In fact, I think it was a packed church. I think it was the largest congregation we ever had for a baptism service. The widest group of people invited. And they came along, and they came along not because of these people's beauty externally or because of their amazing personality, although both those things were true. They came because of their value. They saw in those people not what they would do or they would achieve or what they contribute, but who they were. And people came along to celebrate that day as they symbolically were washed clean and turned from death to life. That value in each of them was not something they achieved, but something given to them. And that's something that every human being has in common. Everybody from, um, from those who do attract our attention and achieve big things to those who don't. From the smallest baby... Um, gasping for its first breath to the other end of the hospital where the oldest, frailest pensioner is breathing their last. From the leaders of great nations who hold nuclear briefcases to the homeless sleeping under cardboard. From the greatest athletes performing on the world stage to the invalid in bed, everybody has something. This innate and unable to lose it value. They're precious. So, so precious. But where do they get that value? And I want to take you to the beginning of the Bible, to Genesis and chapter 1. In fact, there are um, 1,189 chapters in the Bible. But if you can get these three, you'll get 
Well, you'll get so much. You'll get your understanding of God. You'll understand the world. You'll understand who you are. You'll understand the problem of evil. You'll understand the necessity of environmentalism, the futility of war. And you'll even have some understanding of why you just feel like, ugh, on a Monday morning. If you get these first three chapters. So let me begin right at the beginning. In the beginning, God. It starts with him. He's the author. He's around, he was around before the book was begun. It was his idea in the first place. Like um, Harry Potter asking about J.K. Rowling or uh, Luke Skywalker inquiring about George Lucas. He's the one who began it. In the beginning, God. He is the starting point. He's the center of the story. He's the hero. And he made it all. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He's the author. And if you want to know what's going on and why, you need to ask him. You need to come to his word. That's why this book is so important, not just because, um, not just because it was translated in Lutterworth and we get royalties, but no, because, because this is the word of God. This is his truth that provides us a, a foundation. And so here God makes the world, and it's all its astonishing variety. It's unimaginable scale. It's minuscule detail. And it's colossally unnecessary beauty. God makes it. He makes the sun and the moon, separates light and dark, day and night. He makes the sea and the land. He fills the sea with fish. He fills the land with, with, with trees and plants and then animals. And then he does something special. See, right in the middle of his universe, there's this little ball of dirt shaped like a bluey-green golf ball. And he does something super special. Something that requires time and energy and even calls him immense heartache. He creates someone a little bit like him. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over all the livestock, over the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the grounds. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over every creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They'll be yours for food. And all the beasts of the earth and the birds in the sky, all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. What do we learn about ourselves from, uh, from day six here? Well, we learn that humanity is God's idea, and it's deliberate. It's specific. He does it. It's his very good idea. We learn about the equality of the sexes. Male and female made in the image of God. Not one above the other, not individually, but they are equal in the image of God. We learn about the equality of the races because these are all of our great, 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 grandparents, aren't they? And we don't know what color their skin they had. We know that, we know here that they're created without, as far as we know, like, their value doesn't come from their their age, or their role, or their ability, or their education, their productivity, or their wealth. Because however you're feeling, you are made in the image of God, and it is very good. Do you see that? Do you think God does this, and he gives his instructions, 
But before Adam and Eve even do anything, do you know what he says? God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. It's good in, because he did it. And God knew what he was doing when he made you. And you can rest in that identity. You are fundamentally, innately, deeply, and inescapably precious. Now, Genesis chapter 3 goes on to explain why it isn't all as good as it is in chapters 1 and 2. But even if the image of God in us is messed up, obscured by our own baggage, it is still there. Technically, in legal terms, this is often called human dignity. And so right at the beginning of the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights, we read this. Recognition of the inherent dignity and of the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice, and peace in the world. So much of our modern civilization is built up on this fundamental acknowledgement. So all of our laws, all of our politics, all the way we talk, is built on this kind of foundation. All the building is built on the foundation of this acknowledgement that human beings have this innate value and worth. But the question has surely got to be, what is the foundation built on? What's the bedrock underneath? And in fact, um, the United States answers it in the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are the life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. See, this dignity is not something that we need to grasp at or earn. It is given to us by the one who made us. But the difficulty is, of course, in modern life that not everybody accepts it. Not everybody has this fundamental shared understanding that our dignity and worth is based on, our, on God making us. That it is because we are made in the image of God that we have this dignity. Uh, the BBC, a British Broadcasting Corporation, has a, a, a show, and it's called The Infinite Monkey Cage. And it's quite a good, it's a science show, it's got a bit of witty banter, and it's um, educational, and somehow it manages that balance. And it's called The Infinite Monkey Cage, and it, it reveals their view of the world. It might be amazing, it might be infinite, it might be huge and beautiful and fascinating, but really when it comes down to it, it's just a place for advanced animals to live. It's an infinite monkey cage. That we are just advanced animals. This is a magazine that uh, my children's school um, gets, that they read at school, a science magazine. And there's this article answering the question, are humans animals? And they say this. For many people today, that sounds like a silly question. Of course humans are animals. We're composed of cells with genetic material and we move around seeking energy to feed our bodies, pooping it out again as waste. We look a lot like our fellow primates with five-digit hands and feet, our thoughtful eyes, our lean muscular physiques. We have lungs, a heart, a brain, a nervous system, and all those other features that we share with animals. Now, this is not the place to discuss evolution or the processes that God might have used to make his world. But the narrative in Genesis 1 is absolutely crystal clear that the creation of human beings is not the accidental product of random chance or merely just the next step in an automatic process, but it is God's deliberate intervention, his act. He says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness.
And I'm profoundly concerned about this move to reject not only that God's made us, but also that we have this distinct dignity. Because it's a short journey from calling us animals to being able to dehumanize us. Dehumanization is the denial of the humanity of the other. And we see it play out in so many different ways. I think we see it play out politically. When we disagree with the other side, but instead of sort of saying, I disagree with you, we end up sort of calling them bad. They can't just be wrong, they must be bad, they must be evil, they must be beyond the pale somehow. And so if I don't want to interact with somebody's ideas or I want other people to stop listening to them, the best thing I can do is dehumanizing them. Not consider each of them as individual precious image bearers, but instead to sort of lump them into a group as somehow unacceptable. And so we hear politicians talk about left-wing nutjobs, the wokerati, or right-wing bigots or deplorables. And in this othering, we diminish our view of their image-bearing dignity. I mean, it can be even worse online, can't it be? Somehow the, the distance and the, kind of the an- potential anonymity of online enables people to say things about each other that they wouldn't say across the dinner table. And it isn't just theory or some loud voices in our culture. This leads to some very practical consequences for real people. And only a, a few years ago, a certain president tweeted in relation to undocumented migrants, you wouldn't believe how bad these people are. These aren't people, they, these are animals. Or we had a commentator in the UK who wrote a column where she referred to refugees fleeing violence in the Middle East as cockroaches. And that dehumanizing of the other has a terrible track record. And so it was that Heinrich Himmler, one of the closest colleagues of Adolf Hitler, said there's nothing particular about man, he is but part of this world. And they created a movie that depicted Jews as rats. Similarly, during the Rwandan genocide, um, the the Hutu officials um, called Tutsis cockroaches that needed to be cleared out. The dehumanizing of the other enables us to overlook reject or even destroy them. And we see this working out in racism, where somehow I managed to put somebody with a different skin color or a different passport into a different category and deny their essential value as a human being. We can see it work out economically, where people are not individual precious image bearers, but are reduced to units of economic production or consumption. And therefore, the corporation can crunch the individual and pay them less than a living wage because they're they're producing, because it loses sight of the individual. Or the sales team can adopt manipulative practices to sell people stuff they can't afford and get them into debt that they'll never repay. It's only possible to treat people that way, surely, if we overlook their inherent value, their dignity and worth. You'll have all been following, I'm sure, our little royal soap opera with Harry and Meghan. Uh, And the release recently of um, his memoir, but I I don't want to get into the politics of it. You can find me afterwards if you want to rant. There's a wonderful quote that I found immensely interesting. Um, It was talked about his time in Afghanistan. He was asked how many people he'd killed. So my number, 25. It wasn't a number that gave me any satisfaction, but neither was it a number that made me feel ashamed. Naturally, I'd have preferred not to have that number on my military CV or on my mind. But by the same token, I'd have preferred to live in a world where there was no Taliban and a world without war. 
while in the heat and fog of combat, I didn't think of those 25 as people. You can't kill people if you think of them as people. You can't really harm people if you think of them as people. They were chess pieces removed from the board, bads taken away before they could kill goods. I've been trained to otherize them and trained well. If we want to destroy people, the fastest route is to dehumanize them. But it also has a whole nother flip side, which is not just about us otherizing or dehumanizing others, it's even about ourselves having our own understanding of our value and worth and devalued. So perhaps you've been badly treated at work or school, and each day kind of requires gritted teeth and a lowered head just to survive, and you're being bullied. Have you ever wondered what's quite so damaging about bullying? Why it's quite so so insidious and dangerous? Because what bullying does to somebody is not just bruise their back when you slam them up against the locker or hurt their feelings when you say something unkind. It's more than that. Bullying, continued bullying, it defaces someone's self-understanding of their worth and dignity. People who are abused end up believing they are worthless. They could even end up believing that they deserve the bad treatment they're getting. It denies their true value and the, the beautiful truth that a person's a person no matter how small. And many of us want to restate that fundamental acknowledgement that we find in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, recognition of the inherent dignity and of the equal and inalienable rights of all human beings. We want to, we want to reaffirm that. But it's hard in our society. In fact, even though we might claim that as a broad conclusion, um, I want to kind of give you an illustration, really. There's a, a British uh, historian called Tom Holland. He writes this in his book, Dominion, The Make of the Western Mind. He says, If secular humorism derives not from reason or from science, but from the distinctive course of Christianity's evolution, a course that in the growing number of numbers in Europe and America has left God dead, then how are its values anything more than the shadow of a corpse? What are the foundations of its morality? His argument in his book, and it's well worth reading, as somebody who ex appreciates the contribution of Christianity whilst not being a believer, is he effectively says this, if we acknowledge that our values come from the Christian story, so we know that people have dignity, and underneath the bedrock, at least used to be, that people have worth because they're made by God, what happens if you move out that story? What happens if you take the bedrock away? Surely it ends up fundamentally insecure. Or to give you another illustration, imagine you've climbed the tree of the creation of, uh, uh, in God's creation of man. You go out onto the, 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 the branch of um, human dignity and then you start sawing over the branch. You know, you want the branch, you want human dignity, but you start cutting it off from its source in our creation as image bearers of God. And the question is this, how can we keep sitting in the tree if we saw through the branch? And that insecurity, that kind of inevitable wobble when we remove the, remove the bedrock or when we begin cutting through the branch, leads us to incredible insecurity, anxiety, and fear. And so you have 50 million Americans experiencing issues with mental health. In 2021, 48,183 Americans died by suicide. That's about one every 10 minutes. Globally, around 800,000 people die from suicide each year, 
and that's twice the number that die from homicide. More people are killing themselves than are killed by others. And I think anxiety is one of the biggest consequences of the pandemic. And I think it stands behind a lot of our, our polarized politics and identity struggles. If we cut the tie between us and the one who made us, we end up fundamentally insecure. And yet people are seeking hope. One of the most asked kind of big questions on Google last year was this. Is everything going to be okay? People want something. They're worried. They're fearful. They look to the future in ignorance, and yet they're looking for something. In Genesis chapter 3, it tells the history of humanity. So Genesis 1, God makes the world in his image. Genesis 2, he zooms right in on Adam and Eve. Genesis 3 tells us that human beings have wandered from God. So we have moved from unspoiled image bearers to the messy and baggage-laden people that we know ourselves to be. Because in Adam and Eve, we, we rejected God's order and usurped the top spot. We placed ourselves in the driving seat. We decided that we should be the arbiters of what's right and wrong. We undervalued the privilege of being human. And we set ourselves up as gods, a role we were not designed to fulfill. And the consequence of being catastrophic. The first child born into the world doesn't see his brother as a fellow image bearer, but hates him as a competitor. And so the first family row ends in murder. And the ensuing family tree is, is death and life. He's born, he lives, he dies. He's born, he lives, he dies. Joy, sorrow, pleasure, pain, kindness, wickedness. The image of God is still there, but like the Mona Lisa covered in soup, it's not clearly perceptible. And what's visible is a bit of a mess. And I want to take you to our second Bible reading for today from Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets in many times in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he provided purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Less than a month ago, we celebrated Christmas when the second person of the Trinity became human being, became like one of us. You want to know if human beings are valuable? The God who made us become, became one of us. And again, not one on a throne in a palace, but just an ordinary one like us. He'd given us direction, he'd given us advice, he'd given us models, he'd given us prophets. In the end, he comes himself and he's with us. He shows the immense value of what it means to be human by becoming one. And he comes to help. So in Jesus, we see the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. But he is one of us, God, man. And what does he come to do? Well, you see it there. Provide purification for sins. He's come to help. He's come to restore the image, to restore the essential connectedness between us and the one who made us. To heal the rift between rebels and the gracious king. To clean and restore the masterpiece so that it's even better than before. And this could be your experience too. Maybe you're here today and you're feeling like you don't really feel very valuable. 
Maybe it's the way you've been treated by other people. Maybe they've just done you down and they've sapped any kind of acknowledgement and self-worth that you have and you come here kind of, you know, maybe you've kind of put on a nice shirt and you've kind of made an effort but underneath you're thinking, I, I don't deserve to be here. I'm not worth it. Look at all these lovely people. I just, I don't feel like that. Or maybe it's not what people have done to you. It's what you've done yourself. Maybe you look at your own past and there are patterns in the, there are behaviors you've done in the past and there are patterns of behavior now that make you think, oh, I don't deserve to be here. How could God love me? Everyone around here is smiling and I just, they wouldn't smile at me if they knew what I was really like. And you feel worthless. Or you could be here thinking that uh, you're pretty good, thanks very much. You know, you could, drive, you could drive in in a nice car and everyone looks at you and they know you tithe and they know you do well, so they're quite glad you're part of the church. Or, or you know, maybe you're, a particular, um, maybe you're particularly gifted and you know, maybe you're the sort of person who's, who's um, up on the platform or everyone knows how successful you are. You've made it. And you kind of swagger in, thinking, I know I'm worth it. I could be in a L'Oreal advert. I'm good looking, I'm successful. I'll tell you, that is, a, that is an insecure way to build your foundation of value and worth. It will not survive. One day you'll get older, and despite the best plastic surgeons in Miami, you won't look quite as good. And we know what's happened with inflation, so the value of your bank balance might not be quite as much as it is. And one day you'll end up in a box anyway, and you can't take it with you. So maybe you are here today and actually you've got this puffed up sense of self-worth, but maybe you realize that it's not actually very secure. It's pretty fragile. Maybe it's in the bank balance or in the reputation. Maybe it's on social media with a number of people who like you and follow you. Maybe it's that you're kind of building up this kind of reputation for yourself. Or maybe it is that you, you, it's all future, but you know where you're going. You've, you're, on a, you're on a plan. You might be the beginning of the career, but you know it's going to work out eventually. Or you're trying to establish your brand. You know you're going you know to get there eventually. And you've got, you know, you know you're going to do it. And you're striving to kind of establish that. When enough people like me, I'll be worth it. I tell you, it's not going to work. It's like, trying to sort of, it's like trying to build on nothing. So, yeah, it might look all right for now. In fact... Um, houses without foundations can look pretty beautiful. In fact, if you don't build foundations, you can make the house look nicer. But when the storm comes, it's worthless. We need to come back to this, this fundamental understanding of who we are before God. And it's nothing you do, it's nothing you earn. It's nothing you have to strive for, amazing. It's truly liberating. It is your value as one made by God, and more than that, one saved by God. See, if you've, if you've been chasing your own security, your own value, and your own worth, you need to turn from it. And Jesus says, turn. But he doesn't say turn in a condemnatory way, turn because you're out of here. No, he says, come to me. Stop chasing things that don't fulfill. Come to me. If you're here and you're feeling worthless, he says, come to me. I know what you're really like. I know you're more wicked even than you realize. And yet I love you because I know how valuable you are. You're mine. You're precious. I made you in my image and I came to save. 
we sang some wonderful songs earlier. Um, Bill and I were just in tears over there. I'm really glad I brought a hanky, actually. I was kind of... But, you know, there's some great songs. How about this one we sang? I am chosen, not forsaken. I am who you say that I am. I am who you say that I am. You are for me, not against me. I am who you say that I am. I'm really tempted to sing right now, but it'd be the wrong key and it would ruin the moment. But isn't that true that it's who he says we are? It's his, it's his verdict on our lives. And, if, and you know what? He, he sees through the flashy suit and the nice car. But he also sees through the addiction. And he wants to say something true to you who've been downtrodden all the time. He wants to reset it so that you hear his voice. I am who you say I am. And it is that in each individual, as we demonstrate the image of God, as we live that out, we find, we sang again, didn't we? I can see your heart eight billion different ways. We reckon there's about eight billion people on the planet. And in each one of those, you can see something of the image and heart of God. Each one, a precious child you died to save. Now, we're a mess, aren't we? I am. You know, I can put on a good show, but... Doesn't, doesn't work, really. And even if I could fool all of you, can't fool my wife, can't fool my children, and I definitely can't fool him. But he's, I'm precious. And he wants to come and he wants to restore me. And he wants to restore me so that he can be with me, so he can live in me, so he can heal me, so that he can build me on a solid foundation. You know, it doesn't matter if it's our society or your own life. If you try and build on anything other than your fundamental identity in the one who made you and loves you, it will collapse. Maybe not today, but it will. It'll all turn out to be for nothing. So I want to lead us in prayer now. I just gave you a couple of minutes in a moment just to, just to stop and think and ask God that by his Holy Spirit, he would, he would point out for you the specific thing you need to take home. Is it a particular area of your life that you need to hand over to him and surrender and say, Lord, I've been striving here and I'm an idiot. Lord God, I need to surrender this to you because even if I'm successful, it's not going to give me what I need. Or it might be a particular area of hurt. Where you're saying, Lord, I'm letting this narrative play in my head and this narrative actually of abuse and doing me down, it's going round and round and round, it's destroying me, Lord. Lord, heal me, take it away. Let me, let me hear your voice about who I am. Lord God, set me free, heal me. Oh, we don't want to be anxious. We live in an anxious world. And those who know the one who made them and who have been saved and are being restored by the one who died for us, we can be non-anxious, we can be solid, we can be reliable, we can be people of peace. So why don't you just take a bit of time to pray now, quietly. And if you're not a Christian today, this might be the time that you say, Lord, I'm going to come. And if you're there, Lord God, show me how valuable I am. Show me how loved I am. Why don't you just close your eyes. Spend a couple of minutes asking God to show you what you need to take home today. If I can ask you just to bow your heads, I'm going to lead us in a prayer. I think it's a prayer if you're not not a believer and you want to give it a try. 
And you're thinking, God, I, I want to come to you. It's the same prayer, though, actually. If you've been walking for a while and there are things you need to, to leave behind, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord God, I know that so often I believe things that are not true about me and about others. Lord, I know that I don't always live your way. And I try and set up and establish my own identity and worth and purpose and value without you. Thank you, Lord, that you know me, that you love me, that you see in me value that I, that I don't even understand. Lord, God, help me to come to you. Pull me down in those places where I am proud and striving and build me up in those places where I'm hurt and damaged. And Lord, would you restore me? Would you restore the masterpiece that you have made that I might be more beautiful than before and that I might give you glory? Lord, God, I come to you on your terms, knowing that I am who you say that I am. Lord God, by your spirit, would you do this? ask you to keep your heads bowed and if that's a prayer you've prayed for the first time would you just put your hand up where you are just want to know so that we can make sure we can offer you the support it's important kind of stage in life just to say no this is this is me and i'm coming to you lord on your terms we'd love to talk with you afterwards have the pastoral team here or some of the orchid team would love to help you if there are issues questions that are still remaining for you Lord our God, we pray that you would strengthen us in who you are, that we would banish anxiety and fear, or that we would live as your children.